Well, good morning, and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. It is, again, a privilege to be with you. It was a privilege to sit in the Sunday school class and in the devotional this morning. I was blessed by our time together already, and I hope that the remainder of this service can be a blessing as well, by the grace of God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we commit this uh, time to you. And we ask that you would guide and direct, that your spirit would direct our our thoughts, our minds, and help us this morning to uh, grow closer to you, to draw closer to you, and to the image of Jesus. We ask these, make these requests in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're beginning this message on the foundation of last night. And so I thought maybe there was some things that I should... Uh, put on this illustration here because this illustration is going to stick with us throughout the rest of these meetings. These, uh, these different um, ideas here are ideas of form. They're not so much that they are that they are that say the, the, these little churches here are the exact same, built out of the exact same of this. They're ideas of form. And they're patterns. And when you understand patterns, then you can understand where patterns will take you. And so this is a pattern of practice. This is a pattern of principle. And this is a combination pattern of principle and practice. So I wanted you to understand that we're not talking about particularly about what those practices are, what those principles are. We're talking about the pattern that of focus, the pattern of focus that is representative or that, that they're, the end result is representative of. But we finished up last night with the, or what I tried to illustrate last night as a whole was that our created purpose is to know God and that in knowing Him, we will continue to grow in that relationship and deepen or expand our knowledge of who God is. And because of the distance that I'm trying to travel through these messages, I'm moving very rapidly and I'm giving you a deluge of information. And this morning's message is probably the, the most that way. I don't like to do that. Um, I like to go slower and, and build my arguments better. But I'm going to make some conclusive statements this morning that you might have to just research and think about, okay? But I trust that God can fill in the gaps because it's his message, not mine. I want to talk just a little bit this morning about community and culture. Why did I choose the word community, per se, instead of church? Well, the reason I chose community is because I wanted us to understand, I wanted to to work from the foundation of creation, not particularly from the beginning, making a beginning point in the New Testament, but I do want to tie those those together. But what's the difference between community and culture? Well, community is, is a social group, a social unit of living things that have some form of commonality. And it, depending on what form of life it is, depends on what the commonality is. But in this case, we're talking about human community. And so human community, their commonality is beliefs, identity, values, customs, and norms. And so I, I listed those in the order in which they arise. So if you are on a ship with a passenger ship with a, with a wide variety of people, and you get wrecked and stranded on an island, before you decide how you're going to operate together as a community, you're going to have to figure out what you believe. You have to figure out what you believe is important. 
And then once you figure out what you believe is important, you're going to start operating together as a community towards that goal. So probably the first thing you'd think about would be survival. So survival is going to be important. So that's going to be the things that you do as a community of people on that island is going to be work towards survival. So the foundation of community and culture, or the, 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 the deeper part of community and culture, is belief and identity. So I want to give you another illustration over here on this board. In here in the center... We have belief and identity. Then we have values. And then on the outside we have customs and norms. So culture is essentially from here out. It's the, it's the values and the customs and norms that you function with. But underneath of that, the deeper things, the, the primary things, are what you believe and what your identity is as a culture. The stability of a culture is, is really based on how unified your beliefs and identity are. So your stability as a culture needs to be, when you, when you think about your culture being stable or your community being stable, you need to think about how unified your beliefs and your identity are. But out of that then will always arise, there will always be a culture that comes out of a community. And so is, is, is the culture important? Does it matter? Well, yes, it's very important. Actually, it has, it has two very important functions relating to your belief and your identity. And those functions, I think, I hope, are embedded in the message this morning and tonight. But I want to give you kind of a, a rough outline of what those functions are because as we talk about this idea of, of our beliefs and what we believe and the value of what we believe and the importance of passing on what we believe, we don't want to lose the significance of the fact that we are what we are today in part because we have a culture that has, that has helped us to be what we are and we don't want to lose sight of that. So before you think, or maybe I should, I should say a frame of reference to think about culture is, that instead of thinking about that culture is not important or that aspects of culture are not important, rather you should think about, think about them from the perspective that they are important and engage yourself with them. And then, one, you will be at a stable enough place where you'll be able to evaluate them properly. So that's one way that it's important. The other way that it's important is that culture keeps belief from changing rapidly. Culture is kind of a buffer around you, and, and culture happens because of community. And so if you are, as a community, believe a body of things, and a culture is coming out of that, then that culture is a buffer through which if you say, well, I want to change something, you can't just do it like that because everybody else in that culture is applying it in this way. And so you're going to have to work in the culture. You're going to have to talk about things. You're going to have to discuss things to change what is believed by that community. And so it's a, it's a buffer against change, rapid change. And rapid change of beliefs is not stable. You've probably observed people who change rapidly 
and they go a long ways. When you start changing rapidly, it's hard to stop that momentum. So when you make changes, you want to make changes slowly, and you want to be careful that the changes you make are right. Go, going back to my illustration of getting on the target with your, your shots in archery. You don't want to, when you find yourself an inch off the target, you don't want to yank your bow to the left, or you won't be able to stop in time, and you end up, if, if you're off to the right an inch, you don't want to yank your, your bow to the left rapidly because you'll end up a foot off to the left. So culture is very important in the role that it plays with our beliefs, and we want to keep them together. All right, getting into the message this morning, God's community. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew, I'm sorry, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to come back to this, uh, to this verse later in the message, but I finished up last, uh, the last message last evening talking about that to be salvation is Christ in you. The gospel, the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you. There's also another way that the Bible talks about a Christian. And the other way that the Bible talks about a Christian is that we are in Christ. And so it's the idea of Christ in you, but it's also the idea of you in Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 30. And I'm going to begin reading partway through verse 29. Just, um, and I'm going to read the whole, all of verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So the idea of being in Christ, we are a part of his body. We are in him as believers. <clears throat> now I'm going to go back to Genesis and start at verses in chapter 1, verse 26. I'm going to skip around just a bit. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to have these... Um, Print it off, but I'm going to think about. I want us to think about God's design for community. Genesis 1:26, and God said, "Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth." So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He him. Male and female created He them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it." And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then verse 18 of chapter 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And the rib which the Lord had taken from the man made he woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. There are four things that I want to pull out of these verses that I read here. Chapter 1, verse 27. Man and woman were both created in the image of God. So... When God created both the male and the female of the human race, he created them in the image of God. And so in that way, they are the same. But we know that men and women are actually different too, right? And so they are similar in the fact that they're part of the image of God, but they're different. So that means that women show an aspect of God that men do not show. So men show an aspect of God in His image. Women show an aspect of God in His image. It does overlap. There are parts of who we are that is the same. There's also parts of us that are different, aspects of us that are different. 
So now maybe we could think about this circle as being God, and God created man in his image, and then he also created the woman in his image. And so when you see both of those, you actually see more in the two of who God is than you do in the one. In chapter 2, verse 18, God said that there was something that was not good. That was before the fall. Before the fall, God said there was something that was not good. It was not good that man should be alone. God recognized that man needed more than just himself. By creating, but God didn't create another man. He created someone who was different from man when he created woman. And so what man needed was something more than what he was. And we often think about this establishment of the man and his wife as being the establishment of marriage. And that's the second thing that I want to bring out of this passage. And it is the establishment of marriage. But it's, all, it's more than that. It's the establishment of community. Because when God created them male and female in 128, his expectation and blessing was for the human community to spread out over the earth. And so when God created man and woman and established marriage, he was establishing human community. Yes, he was establishing marriage. And marriage is the foundation of human community. But God's expectation at creation was that there would be a human community, that there would be many people on the earth. And interestingly enough, in this concluding statement, um, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that same, that same usage of bone and flesh connection is also used for family later in the Old Testament. And so this idea, was, this idea of bone and flesh is, is family ties. It's not just marriage. It's also the ties that unite us together as people as families. I want to tell you this. The position of our hearts, the position of of our lives on marriage will be the foundation of our communities. And that's why our position on marriage is so important. That's why our position on divorce is so important. Because that is the foundation of our community. The family establishes the way that the children relate to community. The, the, the marriage establishes how children relate to the community. The children grow up. They start new families, and those families spread out and, and create the community. The other thing, the next thing that I want to pull out of this passage is, the third thing, life equals relationship. Where there's life, there's always relationship. You have a relationship with plants. You give off carbon dioxide, and they use that, and they give off oxygen, and you use that. Now, that's a pretty superficial relationship. You have a whole lot more to give the plant, in some sense, than the plant has to give you. Because you can can plant it, you can care for it, you can understand the plant in a way that the plant can't understand you. So it's a superficial relationship, but it is a relationship, and there's life there. But in chapter 2, verse 7, God breathes the breath of life into humanity. His own breath is breathed. His own life is breathed into us. And by breathing His life into us, He breathes into us a capacity to be very closely connected in relationship with Him. In His image, with His life. And then as soon as God created humans, He began to relate to them by speaking to them. 
He communicated to them blessing and purpose. And so he wanted the human community to communicate with him, to be blessed, and to have purpose. Depth of relationship is founded on the ability to communicate who we really are. So your ability to communicate who you are establishes who you really are, establishes the depth of the capacity of relationship. Death is the loss of ability to communicate who we are. So death in the scripture is not so much about inexistence as it is about separation. It's about inability to communicate and the loss of a loved one does not mean that their body particularly is immediately gone, but rather the fact that you have lost the ability to communicate who you are with that person. And so you grieve that loss, that loss of ability to communicate back and forth of that relationship and that knowing of each other. The fourth thing is that life is by nature internal function. Things that are alive move themselves. Things that are dead must be moved by external forces. And so when God created man and he formed his body out of the dust of of the ground, that body just laid there. It didn't have any ability to communicate with God or to function. But when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, that man could get up, he could walk, he could move about. And the same thing happens when we lose life. We lose the ability to be to function individually. And so we have to pick up that body and carry it to where it needs to go. So it has to be so what is dead has to be moved by external force. And I'm going to insert another word there besides external, and that's legal. Because legal is also external pressure. When when there's legal pressure, that means when when a government operates legally, it sets in place an external force that keeps people operating according to the function of the law. So we have a police officer. If we didn't have police officers, we would soon find that the roads were not very safe to drive on. But the force that's used to maintain that is legal. It's external. It's not particularly internal. Now, if you are controlled by conscience in relation to that law, then there will be something within you that will keep you where you ought to be on the roads. But you see, conscience is internal. And the Bible says not only for fear, not just because there's a legal force, but for conscience sake. Because your conscience ought to be ordering what you do. Now, I'm not, in what I'm saying there, eliminating the need for agreements about how a culture should function. What I'm actually trying to bring to the surface is the way that those agreements are carried out. Okay? So when we think about why you should drive the speed limit, should you be compelled to drive the speed limit? Or should you be internally motivated to drive the speed limit? And the difference between those two is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a living force and a dead force. Does that make sense? So anyway, we're thinking about this whole idea of God's community. And I hope you're getting the picture of God's community. God created beings that could communicate with Him and could voluntarily, of their own life, out of the life that he implanted in them, 
they could operate voluntarily and they could engage in a relationship with him and with one another. And each unique being in his image expressed another facet of his divine nature. So the idea that as each, each human being was individual, and as each individual makes up the human community, it shows off who he is. It glorifies who he is. Because we're all made in his image, but we're all also different in his image. And so we are to represent God, to bring him glory by expressing his image. But we self-destructed. I talked last night about how man became self-centered in the fall. And that self-centeredness destroyed or separated our being from God. And so let's try to, let me try to, to illustrate it this way. So <clears throat> I said that we replaced God with ourselves. And so as long as you're looking at something as long as you're putting something in God's place, you cannot see Him for who He is. You never will be able to see God for who He really is as long as you have something else that is your God. And so, after the fall, Adam and Eve began to separate. When God came to Adam and said, what's going on here? He said, he must have forgotten that she was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. He said, it wasn't my fault, God. It was that woman over there that you gave me. You see how he distanced himself from, his, from Eve immediately? That was the beginning of dead community. It was the beginning of the deterioration of human community, of what God had created to be good. So I want to think about kind of in general terms what happened after that. So we have Cain and Abel. And Cain failed to give the appropriate sacrifices in his life. And instead of fixing his problem, he killed Abel. He destroyed the ideal. Abel was the ideal. And so in our selfish nature, we want to destroy the ideal. Instead of correcting who we are, instead of being who we should be, we want to destroy those who are what we know we ought to be. So then, by in three generations later, his great-great-grandson killed a man. And by that point, he had developed such an unhealthy form of uh, sense of retribution that he wanted to avenge himself seven times as much as Cain. So you can see how much that, I mean, it wasn't just that he was three generations later and he wanted to do it three times as much. Instead, he deteriorated, that it deteriorated to the, to the place where he wanted to do it seven times as much. He said, if Cain was avenged once, then I'll be avenged seven times. And that kept deteriorating until the time of Noah. And what does it say at the time of Noah? It says that the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. And the only thing left was external force to stop that evil. And so God brought the flood. And that's what happens when community is dead. It deteriorates to the point where you have to use legal force to correct the issues. And I would submit to you to think about this, that human communities since the time of Adam have all had to have some form of legal force except for one. And it's the original Christian model. And I'll get more into that in a little bit. But selfishness, put this in your heart, selfishness is the spirit of death. It will destroy community. If you are living selfishly, it will destroy your family, it will destroy your church, it will destroy you. But God didn't want to leave us there. So he had a desire to initiate, reestablish a living community. And he made a call to Abraham. And that call was to establish a people. And he called Abraham out of his physical family to create a spiritual family. And what did he say? He said, I will establish my what? 
covenant. I will establish my covenant. Now, hold on to that. Israel was a chosen people out of Abraham to represent God's laws. In Exodus 19, just before the Ten Commandments, he says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Commitment is the foundation of community. It's the foundation of love, and it's the foundation of God's community, living community. But that covenant with Israel did not fulfill God's plan. Daniel 9, verse 11. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law. This was after they had been deported to Babylon, like God had told them at the the beginning. If you don't obey my laws, you're going to get deported out of your land. Daniel 9, verse 11. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And the New Testament tells us why it was unsuccessful. Because it was performed in the strength of their flesh. The only way, the only capacity that Israel had to fulfill the law was in the strength of their flesh. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. God has given us something that we need to be in a living community for Him. The church is the fulfillment of God's community. There's a quotation in Hebrews from from Jeremiah chapter 31. Referring to the Old Covenant and comparing it to the New Covenant. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, where I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. The covenant was with the collective house of Israel. He said, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel. My community, my people. And that connection would come individually into the hearts of the people who were part of that covenant. into the inner being. All shall know me. But that all shall know me is inseparable from the people of God. So the individual knowing of God cannot be separated from the people of God. And it's a living community because it's not written in the tables of stone. It's not written in an external law. But rather it's written in the heart and mind of the individual. And so therefore, the law of God is within you. The life of God is within you, making you a living being that can communicate with God and can voluntarily and freely be what God wants you to be because it's within you. That life is within you. And that life is to come forth from your being. John 20, 20. This is Jesus after the resurrection. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. God breathing life. God breathing life into His followers. The Holy Spirit will produce living community. The Holy Spirit is the life of God in you. That's the resurrection power that we need to live out the Christian life, the Christian faith, to be representatives of Jesus Christ here on earth. As the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. 
Acts 2, after Peter's sermon, after they'd received the Spirit, Peter went and preached a powerful sermon. And then it says this about the people who believed. When they sent, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now the things that these people were doing were not particularly commands. They were things that the the people were doing as a voluntary response of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were continuing, they were continuing in fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. These are things that, they were, that these people were doing out of this new being that the Holy Spirit had placed in them. And the key here is singleness of heart. What was their singleness of heart? It was a single internal desire to follow God, to walk with God, to be what He wanted them to be, to create, to to build up the living community. The Spirit gives life, and the fruit of that life is self-sacrificing love, the destruction of self, self self-sacrificing love. Where there is life, there is relationship. And that relationship is motivated by love, serve one another. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, we have been called into liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion for the flesh, but by love, serve one another. So the living community of God has a, a love for one another that serves each other. Instead of serving themselves, instead of loving themselves, they love and serve each other. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. This is continuing in Galatians 5. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then Jesus, in John 13, 34, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. How did Jesus love us? He loved us with a self-sacrificing love. The call of the Old Testament was to love your neighbor as yourself. That was the call of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, to love them equally. But Jesus loved us with a self-sacrificing love. He placed us above Himself. He gave His life so that we could have life. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That is how you help people to see that you're God's community. By loving each other with self-sacrificing love. We demonstrate the image of God collectively. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Jesus was the image of God. He said, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. When you collectively show this love, this self-sacrificing love for one another, you will represent me on the earth. Ephesians 4, verse 11, Jesus is talking, Paul is writing about the church here. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
I want you to really catch that last verse. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when I did this at Mount Hermon, I got some critique because I made all men in the circle. So I'm going to try to add some ladies here. Now, this will take me a long time. Let's just put a few in each spot. We are to come to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. This local body here is to come to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ so that you can represent Christ to this community, so that you can represent God here. And I want to, I want to make a, a special point for you to consider, and that is that Yes, the universal church exists. There are people, all men everywhere, who call upon the name of the Lord. But in every practical way, this, to you, is the body of Christ. So in every way that you think about the body of Christ, you need to think about this group here. And that's how you should live out your Christian experience. That we hence, now, why should we do that? That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So we need to be part of this body also because it protects us from deception. And the people who protect us from deception are the people who know us because they know what's happening in our lives. And the universal church does not know you, but your local body knows you. And then what are we going to do? But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So we speak the truth in love to one another. And that causes us to grow. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And so the body is joined together through speaking the truth in love. The body is joined together and edifies itself in love. Now I want to go back and I want to catch something. Now let me, let me continue reading. Got a couple more verses here. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. They are separated from God because they're blind to who He really is. So they can't see Him. And so they can't be part of the body until something changes in their life and their being is transformed. And then they come into the body. But I want us to go back and I want us to think about some things from those earlier verses, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You know what those are? Those are diversities. There are different gifts in your church. And those gifts are given to the church to build the church up. But what I want especially for you to notice is that, it's, that those gifts are given for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the King James is the only one there that has a comma between for the perfecting of the saints, between saints and four. Other translations have no comma there, and it reads, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. So that means that every one of you has a ministry. 
And the gifts that are given into the body are so that you can fulfill your ministry. So discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is you fulfilling your ministry. And it's not just for the ministry. It's for everybody in the church. It's not just for Sunday school teachers. It's for everybody in the church. Every one of you has a ministry. And that ministry will collectively bring us together in unity of faith. Oh, I erased that one. Remember that core of beliefs and identities? The unity of the faith? And the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing who God is? You can think about that more. We've got to move on. Fast. There's another aspect of this that I want you to think about. And it's the fact that we enter into this covenant with God and the people of God voluntarily. You are not forced to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. You choose that voluntarily. It is very, very important that we understand that we are part of the body of Christ voluntarily and that we keep that idea of voluntary membership. That was one of the, one of the big marks of Anabaptism was voluntary membership. Both Protestantism and Catholicism, people were baptized in as babies. They were automatically into the church. You were considered part of the church if you were in the district, in the area. You were considered to be part of either the local Protestant church or the local Catholic church. We enter in voluntarily. And we are voluntarily, when we enter into that relationship with Christ, we also enter in voluntarily to relationship with His bride. The New Testament never separates church membership or being part of the body of Christ from being a child of God. They are together. And they should be. They must be kept together. Because we are incomplete individually. We need the collective body of Christ to be what we should be. And we should be engaging in that not only voluntarily because we choose to, but we should also be engaging in the community voluntarily. We should also be engaging in the culture, the values voluntarily. What am I saying with that? Basically what I'm saying with that is that your pastor should not have to come to you pleading with you to get on board with the church agreement. You should be voluntarily engaging yourself with the church agreement. What do the apostles do? Maybe you're thinking all this stuff about internal motivation and voluntary relationships that, you know, maybe we don't even need a statement of faith. That's not what I'm saying. We need agreements. We need brotherhood agreements. They're, they're crucial to the continuation of our belief the stability of our belief. What I'm saying is that you need to be doing what the early church was doing. You need to be steadfastly continuing in the apostles' doctrine. Also in Acts 15, the leaders said, you know, the law was too much for us to keep. But they had a problem in Acts 15, and, and that problem was that you have Jewish, you had Gentile believers and you had Jewish believers and they were trying to work together in the church, and there was conflict there. And they said, we've got to resolve this issue of circumcision. And the, the apostles and the leaders got together, and they said, you know, the law was more than we could keep. And we're not going to oppose that on the Gentile community. And we know that, that salvation is not through circumcision. We don't want to, to lift that up and make salvation or, uh, circumcision a requirement for salvation. So, but, but, we do have to get along. We, we need to work together. We need to have, and the Holy Spirit guided them to three things that were from where? From the law. Those, the, the, sorry, four things. There were four things from the law there in Acts 15 that they selected, and they said the reason, and it, gives, it even gives the reason why they selected them. They said because Moses is preached in every city. 
So the law, people knew about the law. People in every city, the Jews were spread out all over the world. And they said, we're going to ask the people in, all, in the churches to submit themselves to these things to help these cultures blend together. We're going to have these agreements. And it's going to blend the life of the believers together. Uh, and another point on that, you know, the reason why things went so smoothly this morning between Sunday school and church and, and how everything operated is because you have understandings about how you're going to do things. Uh, one one uh, Sunday morning, just soon after Maywood started, our single pastor was our not single, our, our lone pastor wasn't there, John Swartz, and that was before I was ordained. And, and so he, he was going. We had a visiting preacher, and we were getting towards the end of the message, and I suddenly realized that we didn't have anybody to close the service. Who was going to close the service? The understanding was that one of the pastors always closed the service. Who, who was going to do it? We didn't know. Nobody knew who was going to do it. And we thought, well, I, I, so, well, I didn't know what everybody else thought. I would, that's what I was thinking. And I was like, well, somebody's going to have to take the initiative to close the service if this pastor doesn't. He finished up his sermon, he called for a song, and he sat down. We're sitting there singing, and I'm thinking, what do I do? It's chaos. When you don't have agreements, it creates chaos. If everybody wasn't thinking exactly what I was thinking, about 30 seconds after the song, we'd all stood up and started towards the front. Fortunately, not everybody was thinking that. But I closed that service that day. But it made a, it made a point for me, and that point was that agreements help us to function. And they help us to function in a way that we can get beyond... Just the function. Because what's this about? This is about worshiping a holy God, right? So why do we want to come to church and have a chaos of function and totally miss out on worship? We don't. So we want to have agreements about how things function so that we can get beyond the function to what's really important, to what really matters. We also need to get beyond function because a living church is more than one that just agrees about things. A living church is one of example and emulation. And we're going to talk more about that. I did these illustrations up here so that you could kind of get a grasp on some of the influences and some of the factors that played into American Christianity and some of those pressures that have been upon us. And one of the things that I wanted us to, to get from that was that these, these factors have influenced us. And one of the things that I think that is, is a subtle temptation is for us to try to join together principle and practice and make that what Christianity is. And Christianity is deeper than just a joining together of principle and practice. It's more than just a value system that we all agree about, and so we practice on the basis of that value system. It's knowing a person and following a person. And I hope that came, came through to you clearly last night. But underneath of all this stuff is or underneath all of that, it has been, in American Christianity, a lack of spiritual vitality, a, vi a lack of spiritual life. If life is there, it brings forth fruit. And too often, even in Anabaptist circles in America, there's been a lack of fruit bearing. And we have this in some areas, not so much here, but in some areas we have this whole array of different op church options. And, and, and all of them, at least in my estimation, all of them are just a, an attempt to try to figure out the perfect balance between principle and practice. So we've got this church over here that's real heavy on practice and real light on, on principle, and then we've got this church over here that's real heavy on um, principle and not on practice. 
And then you have this whole spectrum of churches in between that. And that's missing the point. That's a focus on the wrong thing. That's like coming to church and all of you focusing on how church, the service is going to function and not on worshiping God. So I want to give you a litmus test for the life in your church. Where do you want to be? Three, four options. With your church family, at work, on vacation, or online. You can fill in whatever strikes your fancy. Where do you want to be? What is the primary content of your conversations? Is it social or spiritual? How do you make decisions as an individual? Independently or with the rest of your church family in view? What are you building? Your business, your hobby, your safety net, or your church? Who are you trying to be like? The world, your peer group, or your pastor? Now I want to go back to something. A living church is one of example and emulation. And I'm talking about your body here. I want to expand our model for church here a little bit. The biblical model is to pull leadership from the congregation you trying seeking the people who are as close to the heart of God as possible. So when you're looking for a leader, like in Acts where they were looking for, for a leader, they were looking for people who were close to the heart of God. And they, they drew those people out from the congregation who they saw had this life of God, were really close to the life of God. And so leaders in the church, in the body of Christ, are like a representation of the heart of God. Now, brothers that are in the ministry, I know that's a heavy load. But the grace of God is what you're depending on anyway, right? So it's by the grace of God that you lead. It's not by your own strength. And then from that is pumping out to the rest of the church Your heart is to be pumping out a life-giving message to your church, a message about where your church can find life. That's what's to be coming out of you as leaders. Now, the important thing for you as a congregation is to recognize the fact that that's their job, and so if that's their job, then you better be paying attention because if they're to be giving you a life-giving message, then what they say matters. All right? There's another aspect of this, too. You're saying, well, you know, it's not just our relationship with God. is not just through the leadership, right? That's right. It's not. Because we also have a nervous system that goes out to the body. Now, I know this is a terrible representation, but I think you're getting the point. There's really a spinal column that runs down through here that carries the bulk of this, and then it spreads out once it gets on down here. The, the Holy Spirit is like that. It is sending each part of the body messages from the head individually. And so you are receiving messages from God through the Holy Spirit. You're also receiving messages from God through your brothers and sisters. Now, the reason I like this, this, part, this part and other parts so good of, of this idea or this concept is the fact that actually... If you, if, you cut off, if you cut off the part of your body in the nervous system or in the heart that's really close to the heart or really close to the nervous system, then you cut off function way on down. If you get, if you get your um, 
spinal cord damaged up here, the rest of your body becomes totally immobile. So if the Holy Spirit gets cut off from your congregation, your congregation will get immobile. Every part of your body will get immobile. Maybe there's some places where that breaks down. But if you get a cut in a big artery, there's a big artery in your leg. A friend of mine when he was young was crawling through a fence with a chipmunk 22, and the gun went off and shot into his leg. And praise the Lord, missed that big artery by a hair. If it would have hit that big artery in his leg, he would have died in about 30 seconds. My point is that as we grow and mature in Christ, as we get closer to the heart of God, as we get closer, we have a more and more significant role as examples in our congregations. And a more and more significant role in imparting truth, imparting a life-giving message, not just the pastors, but also all the people that are close to God. There's yet another part of the body, a part that's important to this whole idea. One of them is rebuilding itself. Your body parts are constantly having cells die off and new cells are being created by the body. But there has to be an example of that body part for a new cell to be built. There has to be examples of cells for new cells to be built. So if they take out your gallbladder, your body doesn't continue to build gallbladder cells. So each part of the body has a tremendously important function in rebuilding itself after its kind. The other thing that happens is, and there's a poem somewhere about this, I didn't look it up, I don't really have time to tell about it, but, or to, to read the poem, but it has the idea of the fact that all the body parts decided that the stomach was lazy. All it did was want to be fed. And so they decided they were going to gang up on the stomach and they were going to stop feeding it. And they did. And after a couple of days, guess what? They were all weak. The body parts are there to serve one another. You start losing body parts, you're going to start losing function pretty fast. And this isn't really about church structure. This is about the fact that the body of Christ, and and my atheist friend just said, I thought this was fascinating. Institutions are not the buildings. They're the people. The church is not this building. It's you. You are the church. Josh said, I should do, go the whole way, so I just have a little bit more. Be patient with me. The early Anabaptists believed that the church was a love-motivated community that sprang out of a vital relationship with the living word. The early church demonstrated this kind of community. Is that your reality? Are you the same kind of church that the early church was? Are you a living, voluntary, love-motivated expression of a life in you that just wants to come out. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This he said of the Holy Spirit, which would come. Biblical brotherhood is centered around spiritual growth and development. If we don't get back to the biblical model if we don't get back to thinking about church from a perspective of the biblical model, if we allow ourselves to be drug in to these alternative options of principle or practice or a combination of the two and focus on structure, and we don't get back to the biblical model, we're going to lose brotherhood. The Anabaptists were known for their brotherhood. And I'm afraid that we are losing our brotherhood. You are in Christ collectively. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. If you offer people to come and join this body, will you be offering them something that is alive? And I say this is by the grace of God, but in the the discussion that me and my atheist friend were having just Friday night, he said, after spending time with you all, he said, I have a hard time taking other Christians 
seriously because of what I see in your lives. And I say nothing other than this, praise the Lord if that's the case because it's in Him. It's not in us. It's not in who we are. It's not even in our heritage, even though that was important, even though that was valuable. It's in us as a generation finding and knowing God in a way that transforms our lives. There is no other way than through Christ. May God grant us the grace, the wisdom, and the Holy Spirit power to live that out. I'll turn it back over to the moderator.